Good Friday day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's Word together. So glad that all of you could join us today. It's Friday, but that's not why it's a good day to rejoice. We rejoice because Jesus Christ made this day. So I hope and pray for all of us that we will enjoy everything he brings to us today. Uh, and... Uh, Receive it as a gift and a blessing from him. It's a good day. So glad you're with us. We are working our way through Romans 9, 10, and 11. And uh, we've been stuck here in Romans 11 for a while because some of the things that Paul says there are difficult. And we need to go back and look at some of the prophecies that uh, predict that, that Paul draws upon to uh, make his point. So we're going to look at that today. Before we do, I want to answer a question that uh, that someone put in the uh, in the. Uh, comments, I believe it was on yesterday's video, uh, and if I remember correctly, it's Spirit of Truth is his his YouTube name. And if you're with us, uh, let me know that I uh, that I'm got you right. So he asked why I was hesitant to take the post millennial uh, uh, mantra. Why why I don't call myself post mill? And for those of you that aren't familiar, there's you know different different views, different perspectives on the millennial reign of Christ. Pre mill believes that uh, Jesus is going to come back and establish a millennial kingdom, uh, millennial meaning a thousand years here on the earth. Uh, there's the Amel position that believes that we are in the millennium from the first to second coming, that uh, God, that Jesus is reigning through the hearts of his people. And then there's the post-mill view that believes that uh, Jesus is going to uh, reign in the sense of really ramping up uh, gospel effectiveness throughout the world. And uh, the traditional post-mill view was that there's going to be this golden age where the vast majority of planet Earth uh, is filled with Christians, and that spills over into government and everything else. And so it's this golden age of human existence, almost an Eden-like uh, existence, and then Jesus comes back at the end. And I said somewhere, I don't know if it was in a live stream or in a comment, somewhere I said that I'm not uh, not ready to take the post-mill uh, uh, label, even though people have been claiming that I'm post-mill for several years now. Well, here's here's the short answer as to why, and then we'll get to the uh, Romans 11. But it, do, it does fit into some of this. Um, uh, first of all, I, I don't love labels. Uh, in general, I sort of try to avoid labels where I can. It, they can be helpful in communication, but uh, you know, just want to be careful with that. Uh, too many things get squeezed into a, a label. The other thing is, and this is the most important, uh, the millennial reign of Christ, the, the millennium itself is only mentioned in one passage in the entire Bible, and it's in a very difficult book, the book of Revelation. And there are still plenty of things that I'm sorting through in my own understanding to try to try to get at what Revelation is, is saying. Maybe at the top of the list is the writing, the dating of the writing of the book of Revelation. If I knew for certain that Revelation was written before 70 AD, then I would believe that the first 18 or so chapters were referring to the fall of Jerusalem, just exactly the same things that we're studying in these other passages. It fits very well. Uh, and I know for some of you, that is shocking to even think about. All you've ever heard about is that Revelation is describing either the current age that we live in or it's mostly future. Um, well, if it was written before 70 AD, a very, very powerful case exegetically can be made that it was describing the fall of Jerusalem. The same things that we're talking about here from Isaiah and, uh, and the, the Olivet Discourse. If, on the other hand, it could be proven that the book of Revelation was written after 70 AD, 
then obviously it wasn't talking about 70 AD. Now we've got to look into the future for John, at least, as he received the vision and try to figure out what it means. So part of it is trying to sort that out. And then the other thing I've uh, I've come to realize is, and I would, I would caution all of you to think through this, um, the book of Revelation is just chock full of allusions to the Old Testament, especially the prophets. There aren't very many quotes. It's not, it's not a direct quote. They don't, it's not like some of the fulfillment passages of Matthew, for instance, where you know this is to fulfill that. It's not really very many quotes, but tons. Of, you almost can't read two verses in, in Revelation without seeing an allusion to something in the Old Testament and especially the prophets. What I have found as I've discussed the book of Revelation with people is most Christians read theology books and they read post-mill authors or pre-mill authors or ah-mill authors and they don't read the Bible. And when I start asking them, okay, show me what this image that takes place in the Old Testament, what it means in its original context, like Ezekiel or Isaiah, and then... Why would that illusion make sense here in Revelation? Most people, including pastors that I talk to, have really no clear understanding of the original context in the Old Testament prophets, and they can't draw a clear line as to why that would apply in the context of Revelation. Instead, they argue from their framework of pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, and argue theologically why this is what it means. I don't care Speaking just for myself here, I'm not interested in your uh, systematic theological framework. I care about exegesis. I want to know why this allusion to that Old Testament prophet makes sense in both places. So for my own study, I need to have a much better handle on the Old Testament prophets before I'm willing to really grab hold of a, a conviction about what the book of Revelation means. So that's where I'm at. And so I just wanted to answer uh, that question that someone put out there. I see a couple comments here. Let me take a quick look here. Um, Sherry says, I do believe it was written early. Yeah, I want to believe that. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense. The problem is uh, we just don't have any external evidence of that. So everything derives from reading and studying the, the, the text itself. And that gives me pause. Uh, Tyler says before 70 AD. So we're, we're tallying up the votes here. Uh, prepared or prep for eternity says, I agree. Wrestling with the dating revelation as well. In our denomination, the SBC, probably 99% are pre-mill. Heart. Yeah, exactly. That is the predominant view. Uh, and I guess Amil is making its way into the SBC to some degree. Not as much post-mill. Uh, but post-millennialism in general is, it is growing. It is a growing view uh, in the in the quote unquote reformed camps uh, throughout the, uh, the the sort of the bigger church idea and uh, and for good reason. Here's what I do like about the post mill. So I'm not willing to take the label post mill. I, I I coined the term. I like to call myself optimal. <laughs> I'm very optimistic as I read the scripture. I'm very optimistic um, about what is going on in in, in God's building of this kingdom of Jesus, the increasing peace and so on. Um, so I'm optimistic. I don't, what I don't like about the traditional post mill view is the golden age 
in the way it's sometimes described because in the in the passage that deals with the millennium at the end there there's uh there's this army that the the dragon raises up that is uh, it's the language is it says there are many of them as there are sands on the seashore right the same same term that is used to describe the descendants of Abraham that's a lot of people and in the traditional golden age view you think where did those people come from those who are opposing Jesus so anyway I don't want to make this into a whole eschatology debate I just want to answer that question Peter says I'm with you on your explanation of Romans 11 however how do you see Isaiah 41 and 2 fit into this bearing in mind uh it's a good question let me go back and look at that and um if it seems to fit our context, I'll come back and address that later. Um, Prep for Attorney says, R.C. has helped change a few minds. Uh, are you talking about R.C. Sproul? Uh, if that's true, yeah, his uh, he's he sort of popularized partial preterism. And I th- someone else that asked that question. And, and the view that I've been espousing of the Olivet Discourse would certainly fit the label partial preterism. And I do want to... Uh, uh, distinguished from full full preterism, there are those who believe that the second coming has already occurred. I'm not there. Jesus is going to come back to this earth someday and uh, glorify everything. Curtis wants to know if Optimil, if (laughs) if that's a transformer. Yeah, I need to to get an outfit, huh? All right. um, Let's uh, let's get to our text then. Thanks for being patient with there. I just did want to address that uh, for those of you who are curious. So let's go back and catch... A little bit of the context here, and then we'll look more carefully where I said we would get to yesterday. (laughs) Paul, Romans 11, verse 25 says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that is the the phrase that uh, we are honing in on here, the fullness of the Gentiles. And we looked at how he used this uh, same term earlier in chapter 11 to describe the, uh, the belief of the Jews, the, the, the Jews accepting uh, this word fullness, I should say, is the word uh, that he used to kind of describe the, the Jews receiving Christ, right? And uh, so the question is, is he using it the same way here? to describe the fullness of the Gentiles or the fulfillment of the Gentiles entering in. And I pose the question, entering into what or coming into what? And you, you may have picked up from our discussion yesterday. I think it's coming into, entering into the kingdom of God. The Gentiles, the prediction um, of, of God saying in the Old Testament that the nations, remember this word Gentiles is simply the word nations. And sometimes our translators translate it Gentiles to kind of differentiate Jews and Gentiles. And sometimes it's translated nations, but it's the same word. So I believe he's talking about the fulfillment or the fullness of the nations coming into the kingdom of God that was predicted in the Old Testament and through the prophets. And so I've been trying to establish that point, uh, drawing from what Paul goes on to say here in, in Romans 11. He says, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. And these three lines come from Isaiah chapter 59. But then this one, the end of verse 27, comes from Isaiah 27. And there the, the context is the destruction of the temple. 
So we've gone and we have looked at uh, the predictions of the, of the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. And I want to just pull you back to Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse again, to because uh, I, well, you'll see where we're going and why. So here in, in Mark 13, this is uh, Jesus and his disciples. He was going out of the temple. One of the disciples said, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So Jesus here is uh, in the temple area and saying, it's going to be destroyed. That was not new news to his disciples. These were Jewish men who knew the Old Testament and they knew Daniel 9 and Isaiah 27 and other places. They knew the prediction of the destruction of the temple. So when Jesus says it's going to happen, that gets their attention. Oh, this is what the prophets spoke of. So he's sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew are questioning him privately. Tell us, Lord, tell us, when will these things be? When is the temple going to be knocked over? What will be the sign when these things are going to be fulfilled? Again, they knew. They knew the prophecies. Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place, but that is not the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are not. Uh, these are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Remember, we talked about this yesterday. If you've been conditioned to see this all about the second coming, you've left the context of Mark. This question and Jesus' answer is in the context of the destruction of the temple. And if you know the Old Testament passages that lay behind this, this makes sense. There would be wars and rumors of war because how has God destroyed the temple in the past? Bringing a nation to physically burn down the city, knock over the temple, and slaughter Jews. That has already happened by the time that Jesus is having this conversation uh, with these men. So it's, it's familiar ground to these guys from what they've read in the Old Testament. Jesus, speaking to those disciples, says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. You'll be flogged in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations, all the ethnoi, ethnos, the Gentiles. The gospel must be preached to all of them. And remember, we looked at how the New Testament uses that language. Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit in all the world. So in, G, in, in, in the first century, this statement was fulfilled. The gospel had gone out to the nations. And can you see already the tie-in that I'm trying to make with Romans 11? Paul says here, the fullness of the Gentiles has entered in. There's a, the hardening of Israel will be until the fullness of the Gentiles or the fulfillment of the nations has come in. I think what he's getting at is the kingdom of God that was predicted in Daniel 2 and other places is now predominantly Gentile. 
That's what I think this phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, has come in. I think that's what he's getting at. Well, this letter to the Romans was written not too far earlier than 70 AD. So I think the time is drawing near for the destruction of Jerusalem, God's judgment on Israel, and by that time, most of those who have received Christ will be Gentiles, not Jews. So to anticipate a question that uh, I think it was Todd, uh, I don't see him on here yet, but someone has been asking me regularly, when is this hardening? All right, let me lay some of my cards on the table. I think it is centering around the church, the, the, the kingdom being predominantly made up of Gentiles rather than Jews and the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem. So let's keep going a little bit more in uh, Mark and then we'll get to another passage that I said we'd get to. So Jesus says, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you will say. Uh, the spirit will be given to you. We've looked at this. Brother will betray brother and so on. You'll be hated by all because of me, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand that as the reader of Daniel, I believe these words should be red, not black, that Jesus is saying them. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who's on the housetop must not go down or get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Woe to those who are pregnant in those days, who are nursing in those days, but pray that it may not be in winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now, nor ever will. We talked about all this yesterday. All right, so let me uh, just skip on down to this uh, passage. So Jesus says, take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. And again, he's still talking to his disciples. So I think he's, this message is still for them. I've told you what to look out for. You compare this to Luke, and Luke said, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, that's the sign that the abomination of desolation is upon you. When the, the Roman armies come and surround Jerusalem, leave, flee, get out of there, because the days of vengeance from God upon Israel are coming. All of that happened in 70 AD. But here's the part that everybody gets tripped up on. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory, great power and glory, and he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know the summer is near. So you're detectives, you know, right? When you start seeing signs right now, the trees out back are budding. Uh, it's soon going to be summer. Well, the same thing. When you see all these things I'm telling you about, men, be ready. That's the time to flee. Even so, you, when you see these things happening and recognize that he is near at the door, and then he makes this statement, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he gives us a time referent. These things are going to happen in the generation of these disciples. So you may be tracking along with me, but then you see statements like this and you think, wait a minute, this sounds like the end of time. This sounds like Jesus coming back. And that is the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, the heavens shaken, and that kind of thing, right? We, again, we've been conditioned, we've been, we've been taught that those are all the things 
uh, Jesus coming back? Well, no. <laughs> we already looked at the, sign, the Son of Man coming, Daniel 7. The scene there is when the Son of Man receives his kingdom. Well, that happened after the resurrection and the ascension. That's, that's Jesus. We know that. He's the Son of Man. He received his kingdom. So now I want to show you that in the Old Testament prophets, this language of sun, moon, and stars, and heavens, that is common apocalyptic language for God's judgment on a nation. Let me say that again. In the Old Testament, when God predicted and declared that he is going to destroy a nation, which he did over and over and over again in the prophets, commonly he would describe the destruction on that nation in terms like the sun no longer shining, moon and stars not giving their light, heavens being shaken. It's not literal. What would happen? What would happen if the sun stopped shining for five minutes? What would happen if the stars moved and fell and, and all that? We would, you know, the, the universe would collapse, right? No, these are, these are apocalyptic terms to describe the kind of devastation that this nation that is under God's judgment is going to experience. Let me show you. Isaiah 13. The oracle concerning who? Babylon. So we are told at the beginning of Isaiah 13 who this vision is describing. Okay? Babylon. We, we don't have to guess at the fulfillment of this oracle. This is about Babylon. The Babylon that was going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple in Isaiah's day. Okay? So here's the vision he saw about Babylon. Here's the words. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. So we are, we are told what this is all about. Who are these uh, consecrated ones that God is calling? It's an army. Warriors, exulting ones. They are going to execute God's anger against Babylon, right? We're told this is about Babylon. A sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people. In other words, uh, think of it. Uh, this army is going to be so big, it's like the mountains are shaking. Uh, the sound of uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. See, the same language is in the Olivet Discourse. Kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation. This, this uproar, kingdoms are in battle here. Listen for it. The, the, the tumult. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. This phrase, the Lord of hosts, occurs everywhere, all over the prophets. Hosts is an army. Go back and look sometime at the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the birth of Jesus narrative. In, you know, the famous passage, we, we sing it all the time in, at Christmas time. Uh, angels we have heard on high and uh, glory and all that. The, uh, the angels that appear to the shepherds at night. It was a host, the Lord, the host of angels. It was, it was an army. 
we, we need to not picture angels as cute and pudgy uh, Clarence. You know, the, the, what, what those shepherds saw was a vast army of angelic beings. They were terrified because the Lord's the Lord of hosts. He's got a huge army. Well, he's mustering them and not just angelic armies, but now actual armies to come and destroy Babylon. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. This is important because, again, we are told this army that's coming, they are tools in the hands of the Lord, tools of his indignation, his wrath, his anger. He is going to use this whole army as a, as a, a weapon to destroy Babylon. And he says, destroy the whole land. The Bible uses, the prophets use these huge hyperbolic language. Someone pointed this out to me yesterday. I think it was in an email from, uh, from Lewis. Um, you know, in, in the Olivet Discourse, it says that uh, this will be the worst tribulation that has ever happened or ever will. And, and we tend to take those, those, that language as at face value. But the Bible uses, God uses these, these huge terms, again, hyperbole and an exaggeration that has an intent for the exaggeration that is not intended to be taken strictly literally. But uh, for instance, the Aaronic the priesthood, we are told in the Old Testament, will last forever. But it didn't. Right? So there's, a, there's another, there's a reason why God uses these these big bold terms, but we're not we, we must be careful and not press terminology too far. So when he says here destroy the whole land, it doesn't mean literally every single thing is gonna be destroyed, but it's gonna be devastating to these Babylonians. It's gonna be really, really awful. That's that's the point. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. That is very important to understand. The day of the Lord, most of the time in the scripture, is talking about God's wrath and judgment. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. These, the Babylonians are going to be terrified. Huh, that's the next phrase, right? They'll be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. If you've ever seen a woman in labor, uh, that's an intense moment. And that's what he's using here. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Again, you see, day of the Lord is God's wrath and judgment. It's cruel with fury and burning anger to do what? To make the land a desolation. I have stressed that over and over again. If you've been with us, desolation, that is the the favorite term to describe a city or a, a kingdom that God destroys. Desolation. Babylon's going to be desolate. He will exterminate its sinners from it. Now look at this. Four, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Friends, this is not to be taken literally. If if this happened... Not only would Babylon be destroyed, but the earth. Nobody would live on the earth. No, every, every inhabitant of the earth would be dead. It is not a literal statement here. Stars not flashing, sun being dark, moon not shedding light. No. 
this is apocalyptic language. And Todd, I see, has, uh, has offered his perspective on what some of these terms mean. Maybe. Maybe. I think that that's a reasonable and plausible view. For the rest of you, I just want you to see this is not talking about the literal sun actually being dark. But for the Babylonians, it is going to be like lights out. It's going to be devastating. Okay? When, God, when Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and God's wrath against the nation of Israel and the destruction of the temple, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. You see the same terminology. Not because he's actually predicting that the sun is going to stop shining in 70 AD. And this is not about the end of time. This is using familiar language to these disciples who knew Isaiah 13, using familiar language to say God is going to bring judgment on Israel. The day of the Lord is near for the Jews in Jerusalem. That's what Jesus is predicting here in Isaiah, I mean, uh, Mark 13. Let me show you another one, Ezekiel 32. By the way, it's worth reading the rest of uh of Isaiah, uh, I will just show you at the end, we are told specifically, behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them. You see, he's giving us the fulfillment. This, this passage started with the Oracle of Babylon, the vision that he saw against Babylon. And he uses all that apocalyptic language. And then we are told exactly who this nation is, who's going to come destroy Babylon. It's the Medes and Persians. And that's exactly what happened. Same language is used in Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21 to describe God's wrath against the Jews in Jerusalem and the nation there. It's not the Medes, it's Rome, the Roman armies. Let's look at one more passage here uh, quickly. Ezekiel 32, in the 12th year, in the 12th month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So it came to Ezekiel saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All right, so you see, we are given the specific audience here. This oracle that Ezekiel sees is about God's wrath against Egypt and Pharaoh. Not the same Pharaoh of Joseph's time, right? This is, this is in Ezekiel's time, uh, so much later, but same idea as what we saw in Isaiah. You compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you are like the monster of the seas, and you burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. Whoops. Thus says the Lord God, now I will spread my net over you with a company of many peoples and they shall lift you up in my net. I will leave you on the land. I will cast you in the open field. I will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you and I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. You know what that means? They're going to be slaughtered in lion food. I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your refuse. I will also make the land drink the discharge of your blood. And as far as the mountains and the ravines will be full of you. And I will extinguish you. I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord. 
Do you see all this language? Heavens, stars, sun, shaking the heavens, all this. It's not literal. It's not happening. It's not, it, it, the, star, the sun actually rose. This is not Joshua. <laughs> Joshua's day when God made the sun stop for a day. I, that literally happened. No, this is not, this is apocalyptic language saying it's going to be lights out for you, Pharaoh. I'm going to take you out. I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into lands which you have not known. I will make many peoples appalled at you and their kings will be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them and they will tremble every moment, every man for his own life on the day of your fall. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon will come upon you. By the swords of the mighty ones, I will cause your hordes to fall. All of them are tyrants of the nations, and they will devastate the pride of Egypt, and all, the, all its hordes will be destroyed. I will also destroy all of its cattle from beside many waters, and the foot of man will not muddy them anymore, and the hoofs of beasts will not muddy them. Then I will make their waters settle and cause their rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord, when I make the land of Egypt a desolation. And the land is destitute of that which filled it. When I smite all those who live in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord. You see it? All the same kind of language as Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. All the same language when God brings a nation against another nation in his wrath and judgment against uh, the wicked nation. That's what's happening here. Israel is suffering the wrath of God. Jesus is pronouncing the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and he's using all the same apocalyptic language that is familiar in the Old Testament about the sun, the moon, the stars, all of that, predicting the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So tying this together a bit, remember back to Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, in chapter 9, for that matter, and we see that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom is that stone in, in, the, in the vision we saw in Daniel 2. There are the four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greek, Rome. And in the midst of those kings, the stone will rise up to this huge mountain. It'll crush all those other kingdoms and, and then become this great mountain that covers the earth. That's the kingdom of God, we're told. In Daniel 7, we see Jesus, the Son of Man, coming to receive his kingdom, right? Well, what happens when he receives his kingdom? Daniel 7, I kept looking in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven. This is, by the way, verse 26 of Mark. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That's Daniel 7. This, with the clouds of heaven... One like the Son of Man coming, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So the idea here is the Son of Man, Jesus, comes in the clouds not to planet Earth. This, this, the, the Son of Man coming in the clouds is not Jesus' return. It's when, when, when Jesus makes this statement... Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with a great power and glory. That is not the return of Christ at the end of time. He is grabbing this language from Daniel 7 to describe Jesus, now the Son of Man, going to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom from the Father. 
Look at verse 14. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, what's the next word here? Nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom which will, is one which will not be destroyed. Do you see the point? When the Son of Man receives his kingdom from the Ancient of Days, he comes in the clouds, he ascends through the clouds to the throne room and receives his kingdom. It is a worldwide kingdom. It's a worldwide dominion. It's not just for Israel. He's the king of all nations, the king of all kings. So what we see in Daniel, yeah, Todd got it. We see in Daniel, the son of man ascending to his throne. Now he has worldwide dominion and the kingdom is going to be predominantly Gentile. The fullness of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom comes in at that point. So the answer to Todd's question, did the hardening of the Jews lift in 70 AD? I think so. Way to go, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I think so. So let this all wrestle around in there and uh, we will come back and I'll, I'll try to show you in the tech context of Romans 11 how this fits and how, yes, the hardening lifted in 70 AD. And don't ask all the questions that come yet. You can ask them and I'll be happy to engage with you. I just want you to, and again, you don't have to believe what I believe, right? You, you, you study scripture on your own. You come up with your, what you think it means. But I just, at least before you start um, asking all the, the skeptical questions that come to mind about this, just let, at least give my view a, a clear, careful listen and think it through. And then, and then we'll talk. I'm not afraid to push back. I, I welcome it. It's how we learn, right? But uh, sometimes people throw out their opposition before actually understanding the, the position. And I think we all will grow better if we take positions we don't agree with and actually understand them so that we can articulate them carefully and then, uh, and then, then ask good questions about it. So we will come back and, uh, and answer those questions, but, I, but, but let, it, let it sink in. Look at Romans 11 again in light of all that we've said and, uh, and see if, if it makes sense. I see some questions anticipating here. Uh, Todd says, seeping in or is that sleeping in? <laughs> and uh, Prepped for Eternity Homestead starts to ask a question about modern Israel. Yeah, I, I think I know what question you're asking. Let's come back next week and we will, uh, uh, we will look at that. All right, everyone, have a blessed weekend. Rejoice in the Lord's goodness. Keep wrestling with the scripture, and we will see you, Lord willing, on Monday. Take care.